0: Last week, I introed our new sermon series called Ecclesia with a question. The question was, When did the mission church become a church? And when I offered up that question, I offered that up with a series of dates I put on the board. I, I may bring that up again later in the series about when we started meeting, uh, when we started having communion together, uh, when we uh, actually had a plurality of elders, more than just one guy, but a, but a group leading together, when we had a membership, when we got into a building, all these kinds of things we, we had in there together. And I asked, when in that journey did the Mission Church become a church? And the reason I asked this question is because your answer to the question will reveal much about how you view the church So I am not primarily concerned that you know the history of the mission church. That's probably helpful to know, but that's not the primary concern. I want for you to know how to identify a God-honoring, gospel-breathing, word-saturated, healthy church. That's what I want for you. And one of the reasons I want this for you is so that you'll be able to identify and find one someday when inevitably... The majority of this congregation may not be here five or ten years from now. There's lots of reasons why that could be the case. We live in a more transient time in our culture now than ever before in history for some very obvious technological reasons and several others less technological. But that's the way our world operates. And someday you may have to choose a healthy church in a new area. What are you going to think about when you have to answer that question. What's a healthy church? What's a good God-honoring local church? Here's what I want to do today for you. I want to convince you that doctrine matters. The word doctrine is just a word that means teaching. Teaching matters. In fact, that's the title of the sermon today is Doctrine Matters. It has the power to unite and to divide and what I want to help you see is that God uses both effects for the good of his church. The uniting and dividing power of doctrine. So we're going to start by going to Acts chapter 2, all the way back to the beginning church days. This is one of the most famous passages on what the early church was like. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is going to be our key kind of launch pad text for this morning. I will put it up on the slide if you didn't bring your Bible with you. I want to go ahead and pray, read this this several verses out loud together, and and then uh, move from there. So let's pray. Lord, as we open your word and as we seek help to understand the kinds of things that you have told us are important, even critical, maybe even necessary, for a church to honor you, we need help to see this. We need help to overcome whatever might be in our minds that are, it's keeping us from seeing this. And Lord, perhaps most importantly, we need to connect that to our heart. So it wouldn't just be data dumping. This wouldn't just be instruction giving uh, like a lecture hall. But that Lord, this would be preaching from the word of God that is meant to give you glory and to be strengthening, edifying to saints. So we ask for your help today as we read through this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Very short backstory here. This text is being talked about. It begins on the day of Pentecost. That was that supernatural day about 50 days after Jesus had resurrected and then eventually he would ascend into heaven and then Pentecost came about. Pentecost was the day in which God sent his Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to infill the hearts of all the believers gathered together in Jerusalem. And They went out into the streets, they began preaching the gospel to the many people who had gathered in the city for that feast of Pentecost. And people are hearing the word of God preached in supernatural ways, and they are responding, "What what are we supposed to do about this? And Peter, who's the representative preacher that day, says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the people respond in like manner. And the church was born out of this. And this is what it says. The church was like from that day in the earliest days. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Just for a question to try to get our minds around the, the event here, do you remember the feeling that you had in your heart when you first believed? When you were first said, do you remember that first season as a new believer in Christ? Some of you, it might have been really early in your life. You know, it, just, it happened when you were a, a young person and the memories have faded from that. Others of you, it happened later in life and you have very vivid memories. Others are very recent. Some it's been very long time ago. I want to ask you just to think back on what that was like. Now imagine that every Christian in your city was experiencing that moment at the same time. That's what's happening in Acts 2. You know, you talk. it's been a while for you. Maybe maybe you've been a believer for a long time. Praise the Lord. And that's been long enough ago that you can remember it, but it doesn't feel so fresh to you. Have you experienced that in someone else? Have you watched somebody else come to faith in Jesus and go, I want him. I don't want the world. I want him. It's It's glorious and joyful. And imagine everybody's experiencing that. The whole church, everywhere. Everybody is just bubbling over and It's an exceptional event that takes place here, supernaturally even. And there's a lot that is being said here about the early church. We're going to come back to this this passage again in future weeks because it's so necessary for us to see the foundation, the foundation stones laid for the beginning of the church. But just a few quick things to get us started. I want to go back to the very first verse, verse 42. What is the first thing that is said about the church The body of believers gathered in Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For the record, that is exactly what we do when we gather around the New Testament. The apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to a common teaching. They were introduced to a shared set of beliefs. In fact, this is what produces the following behaviors. Look at all the beautiful things that happen. They're breaking bread, they're praying together, they have fellowship together. If somebody has a need, they literally go sell all they got to come back and distribute so that others aren't hurting while they have plenty of comfort. And the only reason that stuff happens is because they believe it should. A common set of shared beliefs was foundational for these Christians. And the same is true today. A local church necessarily gathers around a shared set of beliefs. This is a fundamental, foundational, unavoidable, unavoidable truth. In fact, it's even prescriptive throughout the rest of the New Testament for us. One of the chief responsibilities of a church is that it teaches what is true. Is that it proclaims to people what they should believe. That's what the good news is. Truth matters. You know, on our website, if you go to our website right now, just log into the missionUtah.com, you'd see at the header right there, truth matters. Like the first words you'll see up there. Actually, I think you can sign up for Kids Camp right before there. The truth matters is right next. Because what you believe is the most important thing about you. I want you to think about that for a second. What you believe is the most important thing about you. Not your race, not your gender, not your nationality, not how tall or short you are, not what job you have, not where you live, not how much money you have. What you believe is the most important thing about you. Now it is true, you can know true things and not be a Christian. James 2 tells us that even the demons believe there's only one God and they shudder. So you can know true things about God and not be a believer, You can have a log of of facts. But you cannot be a Christian without a basic knowledge of the truth. What makes a Christian is not a membership in a local church. It's not being a group of a religious gathering. It's not getting baptized. It's not works that you do because you're a believer. It's belief. We call this necessary knowledge knowledge. The essentials, the core beliefs, the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. Now you may have heard, like I have, many people say, Well, isn't, isn't just isn't just I believe in Jesus enough? Isn't that enough? If I, if I say I believe in Jesus, that's enough. One really obvious example this might be like an Islamic family member you might have, or somebody from the from the background of a Muslim faith. They believe in Jesus. But what they believe about Jesus is insufficient for salvation and therefore insufficient for unity. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Muslims do not believe that Jesus was crucified. And they do not believe that he was raised from the dead. You cannot be saved, no matter how much you say you believe in Jesus, if you don't believe something about Jesus. Namely, that he died and rose again. It's one of the things you have to believe about Jesus. What a person believes about Jesus really, really matters. Being a person of faith is not enough. This is another thing that's kind of a way people talk about things in our kind of over-spiritualized day. We talk, well, as long as someone's a person of faith, a religious person, spiritual person, they're good to go. No, you, know, you have to have faith in something that's true. You can believe all kinds of false things. You have to believe what is true. I'm just building a case here and explaining to you what you believe is the most important thing about you. Therefore, what a church teaches is critical. We have a word that we use for teaching. It's doctrine. And it's imperative that a church teach sound doctrine. A church is going to deliver what ought to be believed to be true. And that's critical. Let me show you a few places the New Testament tells us about this. This is just in regards to leadership. This is, this is in qualifications for pastors in the New Testament. It says this in Titus 1.9. He must hold, he the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is a foundation stone of, a, of the qualifications for a Christian pastor. He has to know sound doctrine and know it well enough to be able to teach it to people. And even to deal with the contradictions, contradictions, and rebuke those who contradict it. There has to be a, 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 a kind of understanding of truth that flows from him. Titus 2 1 will say this is this is now Paul talking to Titus, who is the one sent to go appoint these pastors and elders. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound. Doctrine. If you're even going to go appoint guys to do this, you have to teach sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's the same word as doctrine. Same, same exact word we've been looking at there. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It should not be surprise, Surprising. A large portion of our regular Sunday gathering time is devoted to teaching, delivering truth, correcting the errors of our minds that tend to seep in in a given week, living in and amongst the world. This is a foundation stone for the Christian church. There has to be truth being proclaimed. Doctrine really matters. So I want to say two things about doctrine as we continue on this morning. And there are things that you probably know intrinsically. I'll put it into words for you. Doctrine unites and doctrine divides. Now, depending on your background and the list of experiences that you've had up until this point in your life, one of those might be more emphasized in your mind than the other. That doctrine has a uniting effect and it also has a dividing effect. And I, here's what I, my appeal is to you this morning. I think both of those effects are good. And used by God for the good of his church. I'm going to show this to you right now. Because a common set of beliefs is essential for the individual, a common set of beliefs is essential for unity amongst believers. In fact, without a common set of beliefs, you have nothing around which you can unite. And what I'm saying right now, that statement that I just said, that's a universally applied truth. That's a truism that can just apply. And it's even as true of false teaching. When people agree on it, it will unite them. Just yesterday, I took the kids up with Laura to, to the zoo, and on the way back, we saw an Episcopal church up on the, on the hillside up that way that had a, a, a Christian uh, cross up on the top and then a gay pride flag out front, and a thing that says, we, we, welcome, we welcome you all, something like that. I forget exactly how it said it. Let's think about this. God hates pride, and he hates sexual immorality. Even though he loves sinners and people who fall into such errors, people gather together around a shared set of values. A person who might go to a church like that, for example, would have to go, I can agree with that sentiment. In fact, I bet you it breaks unity if a person were to go, you know, I don't think it's good to put a gay pride flag out front. For whatever reason, they did it. I'm even trying to abstain in in heavy judgment about why they might do that. But if a person thought it was good to put a gay pride flag outside of a church, you might be comfortable in that body. If you thought it was not good to put that outside the front of your church, it will divide you. Why? Because of what you believe. That's why. Your beliefs really will determine whether or not you can unite with the body The New Testament tells us in many different ways that unity of thinking, agreement on doctrine is not only critical, but it's desirable. We want to have this. Philippians 2, 1 through 2, Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Paul aches for the church to have doctrinal unity. I want you to I want you to be in the same mindset as one another. If there's any encouragement, complete my joy. There's something lacking in my joy that'd be filled if only I knew. Philippian church, that you all were in agreement on these things together. We're not clones. We're not identical stamps of one another in our thinking. New Testament, I think, makes this clear for us. There's categories of personal conviction that'll be distinctions for us, how we deal with lesser matters. But I think that what Paul is talking about here is the sufficient agreement for unity. I think that's a helpful term. Sufficient agreement for unity. That means that you have to have a kind of agreement in order to be able to gather together on things. Sufficient enough to get along well together. This is why one of the things we do when people are thinking about getting married, we say, you need to make sure you have sufficient agreement for unity. It doesn't mean 100%. My wife and I, by God's grace, are together on 98% of even the minutiae of doctrine in the New Testament. And there's really only 2% upon which she's still wrong. (laughs) I love you, babe. Just kidding. But that's... Those categories, not just the number, but those categories are sufficient agreement for unity for us in our household. We have real unity around the gospel together because of that. The same is true with church gatherings. Ravi Zacharias is a public Christian apologist, a really eloquent speaker. And one of the things that he says I think is really helpful. He says, unity should not be confused with uniformity. It's really helpful to me. That doesn't mean everyone looks exactly the same. Welcome to church. Here's your robe. Shave your head. Do, 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 no, 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 hold on. There's a lot of diversity in things here. But unity should not be confused with uniformity. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Did you see this? Paul does not want divisions. And the kind of divisions he's talking about here are those that are a practical division. That means a division of how a church might express or practice what they believe. And we're going to see that in the upcoming chapters in 1 Corinthians. If you were to read through 1 Corinthians, he'll begin to get down to the brass tacks of exactly what he's talking about. He, he defines it pretty clearly. And what is amazing is he introduces this letter was saying, I don't want there to be divisions among you. I want you to be united in mind. And then he goes on and several times tells them exactly how and when they should divide. I don't want you to divide, but you might have to. And here's when you should. Multiple times in 1 Corinthians, he'll tell people exactly how and when they ought to divide. Let me show you one place in which he does this. Doctrine is uniting, but it also necessarily divides. Let me explain this to you using 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 19. Just several chapters further forward in the same letter. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear, Paul says he's getting his report, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's the same word that he used in chapter 1. And I believe it in part probably means that I I believe the part of the report that I got from you about this. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You catch that? In chapter one, he goes, this is, I don't want you to divide. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to be in agreement even on in what you think and in judgment that you have to bring to bear in hard situations that he's dealing with. Tons of messy stuff in the Corinthian church. Honeymoon is over by the time you get to 1 Corinthians. There must be factions among you. And why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What does this mean? He doesn't want divisions. What pastor does? I can tell you for certain, I don't roll out of bed and go, man, I hope there's a good fight today. (laughs) In fact, some of you might have even been through church splits in the past. That's where a local church body has something that divides. It can start with something as simple as the color of the carpet, silly things. And it can get as dramatic as things that are the, the difference between truth and heresy. Like gospel, you can be saved and... Anti-gospel, you can't be said. It can be all different variations of that. You may have been at a church like that before and seen the split, and you know the pain of what it is like for a church to split, and it hurts. No one wakes up going, I want that today. Nobody wants that. But Paul here acknowledges that division might be necessary. For what purpose? In order to preserve sound doctrine. So that you know the genuine ones among you. You know those who are staying true to the word. I want to to appeal to you on this. I want you to consider for a moment that we can at the same time not want division and be willing for it if necessary. Jesus has built into his church ways to deal with error. And division is one of the most obvious preservation mechanisms. It's a tool utilized by God, given to the church to accommodate our sinfulness and our folly and our imperfections so that the truth may be preserved for us. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if division wasn't an option. What if Paul were to say, I've heard there's divisions among you, at all costs, stay together. What if he were to say that? No matter what, don't you dare divide. What if he said that? What if that's what his teaching was here? Not that there must be factions among you, but there mustn't be factions. Don't ever do it. Never, ever do it. What would happen when a bunch of people tried to head down the path of error imagine for a second there's a group of hikers and they're trying to get to a waterfall a beautiful waterfall well of spring water coming out and and just enjoy the, the the health that flows from it and they all head out together at the base of the mountain and every time they come to a fork in the road those who know the way to that path say hey it's to the right but others go nope it's to the left and every time there's an option to decide where to go. If unity, non-division was the highest value, the group would either never arrive or they would go with whoever is the most stubborn or they would divide. And at the end of the day, someone says, it's this way, that's the cliff and you're gonna die if you go to the left. Go to the, you have to go to the right here, you have to go up this way. That's danger. This is health. And some say, we're going anyway. If the church were to say, well, unity is more important and go, what would happen? Fall to bits. There comes a point where we say, I don't want to divide. I want you to come. Everybody, please come this way. This is the right way. But I have to go, even if it means going alone. Look what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4. Three through four. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Same word doctrine. They will not endure it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening, listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Apply that to that group of hikers. That's literally, some are going to go this way and others are going to want to hear that. And they're going to wander and they're going to go into myths and error. Paul says this is, this is going to be certain. The whole New Testament warns us of this. It's all over. It's in virtually every book of the New Testament it gives us some kind of warning of this. Don't follow into error. It is true that some people get so uncomfortable by, maybe even fearful of, conflict, even the conflict that leads to division, perhaps, that they're willing to put up with all manner of errors in order to avoid the conflict. That's not okay. It is not the example that is given us in the Bible. Galatians 2, 4 through 5. Look what, ha- look what happens when there was a kind of false doctrine being brought into the Galatian church. And Paul gets wind of it. He arrives. He's, he experiences what goes on. This is what he says when there were people there that were trying to teach untrue things. He said this, yet because of false brothers... Secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. He did not entertain those lies. That was, that's a lie. That is not true. And if you were to read Galatians, he's talking about gospel. This isn't little ancillary things like should we have a choir on Sunday or not? Should we have pews or chairs? It was not that kind of stuff. This was gospel. People might die and go to hell forever if this is not held to. That's why he says the reason that he did not yield for a moment, he didn't give way, he didn't compromise with that view in a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See that? The gospel and you hearing it rightly and it being preserved, not changed with the culture and the people, none of that. It being preserved is more important. No compromise with that. No, when it comes to the gospel, there is no room for compromise on this. There can be compassion and heartbreak and a desire for those to come along with, but division might be the preservation mechanism at that point. You know, the Bible commands us, commands us to not tolerate false doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 through five says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension slander evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain hebrews 13:9 says do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Second John 9 and 10 says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. If somebody comes and says, I'm a brother, I want to be a pastor here, I want to, I want to lead you, I want to guide you, do not receive that person as a brother if he rejects, The clear teachings of Jesus. The Bible is so clear about these things for us. Look what it says in Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What should we do? Avoid them. Don't go down that path. There's no rehabilitation procedure for false teachers in the New Testament. In other words, there's no accommodation for that. There's no compromise to that. There's no, here's how you make a wolf a sheep. It doesn't work that way in the New Testament. The warning is always, watch out for this. As Christians, we may not, by God's command, we may not put up with false doctrine. So how do we know which doctrines are worth separating over? That's really a critical point, isn't it? Because we could just take this and almost everyone could nod along. Of course you shouldn't. Of course, you could all nod and say, of course you shouldn't follow the false doctrine. But which doctrines, which practices are worth separating over? I want, I want to make something really clear here. At the mission church, I, I think God-honoring churches, we have a short list here. Just a couple things. We don't come up with an arbitrary list of finer points and then go on a witch hunt to try to divide. We let the Bible divine for us, define what we ought to consider first of importance, the things worthy of uniting over and the things worthy of dividing over. And I would just like to propose for your hearing today two things, all the rest of the things can be dealt with if these two things you find in a local church. First, the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he goes on to more and more appearances that Jesus had after he was resurrected. First importance. It's okay for us to use this kind of language. There are doctrines in the Bible that are more important Quicker to apply, more urgent for you to get right than others. This is the first important stuff. Sometimes when people ask me as a pastor, doctrine categories, what do you guys as a church believe about this and this and this? I find it helpful to bring in a a, a kind of illustration that we use. We call the die, defend, discuss bullseye. There's a central, essential core doctrines that we call the die. We will die for this kind of doctrine. If somebody put a gun to my head and says, is Jesus Lord? By God's grace, I hope in that moment I would say yes and die for that doctrine. Outside of that are ones that we also hold true that we would say we defend. Okay, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Calvinistic in the way I look at the sovereignty of God and, and salvation. And if somebody were to say, gun to my head, will you die for Calvinism? No, no, don't shoot me for that. I'll defend. I'll tell you why I believe that and why I wish you'd come along with me in that. But no, I'm not going to die for that one. I'll defend it. But you can be a Christian and not hold to it. And outside of that, we have other doctrines that we call the discuss doctrines. The stuff that we go, man, the exact order of the end times events. There's a lot of questions we have about that and how to deal with it. The organizational structures of a church might be in that Ones that we will discuss together. Hey, these are worthy of us talking about. We're not going to divide over. We're certainly not going to die over those kind of things die, defend, discuss. Not all doctrines are equally weighty. The Bible even tells us that, and that's okay. doesn't mean that they're not less true or more true, but there are some that urgently need to be understood for a person to be saved. This is why when someone says, what must I do to believe? What must I do to be saved? It doesn't go, well, sit down for a few hours, brother. we got some stuff to walk through. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved the church, we want to think like this. First, you have to have the gospel. Look what it says in Galatians 1, 8 through 9. Paul writes, even if we, apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See this? Gospel is first importance. You get the gospel wrong, there's nowhere else to go. First is gospel. The second of two is qualified leadership. The most explicit lists on leadership in the New Testament can be found in 1 Timothy 2-3 through and Titus 1. The qualifications given for elders and then deacons, that's pastors and servants in the church. And we're literally going to commit an entire week to this. Two weeks from now, we're going to come back and do an entire week on this. So I'm going to pause a little bit and come back to some of that. The qualified leaders simply are lovers of truth, committed to the word of God. If a Christian's looking for a trustworthy church in the valley and they were coming, they were to say, listen, what should I look for if I'm trying to find a good church? The basic level is look for qualified teachers preaching the true gospel. Why? Because is there anything else important? Yeah, there's actually a lot more important. But if you have people who are qualified by the list given in the New Testament, love the Bible, are a good example, they, they submit themselves to this, they grow in humility so that they will constantly be addressing those issues and correcting with the word of God, and they preach the gospel, that's a starting point worthy of following. That's a good start. In fact, built into qualified leadership, preaching the true gospel, you have the ingredients to deal with and solve all the other problems that can arise in a church. I could give you a list of dozens of subcategories of doctrine that we would not divide over. I could give you uh, that we we have disagreements over, not divide over. I could also give you a list of literally hundreds of verses where we may have disagreement on their interpretation, on the finer points of it. I'll take this last little word and part like this, and those things we would not divide over. To have gospel and qualified leadership would be the starting points of those things. It's critical. Here's what I want to close this morning. I want to give you a list of six things, and I think I can do this pretty quick. I want to give you six things that I think would be helpful to think about. These are my closing thoughts regarding the category of doctrine mattering in the life of a church. In no particular order, look at these. First, we, the mission church, welcome those who disagree with us. First off, we do not demand that people attending held to any of the beliefs, any of them. A person can come and visit this church and listen and sit under the teaching and and soak it in and be amongst the believers and not believe anything about God or the Bible or any of that. We are eager to have people who don't hold to our beliefs show up here. In addition to that, even for membership at the Mission Church, you do not have to hold to all the finer points of doctrine. Doctrine. There is room for disagreement on all kinds of things. You do not have to be uniformed with the pastors. The pastors here aren't uniformed on every single thing, but we have a sufficient, a more than sufficient agreement for unity. You are welcome here, even if you don't agree with us entirely on all these things. If you were to look at our website, you could find our statement of faith. And what that is for us is a tri- an attempt at a pared down summary of what it means to be a believer. That's why we we went through that carefully and tried to deal with it. I, I expect in the future, we'll even revisit to try to dial in language and wording to make it even clearer for people so that we don't give more than is needed, but that we are careful to not give less than is helpful to clarify in some of those big categories of doctrine. And one thing that you need to know about Christians is that there's a natural Christian impulse to draw people into our beliefs, to convince one another of what we believe. We want to convince you of what we've become convicted about. I meet regularly with a pastor from an Orthodox Presbyterian church. His name is Jason Wallace. I meet with him regularly. We do lunch together. And uh, one thing that's uh, different about the Presbyterian church is that they baptize infants. And at the, at the Baptist church, we believe that baptism is for uh, believers. So Only those who have made a credible profession of faith will be baptized. Because the Bible says so, obviously. And um, every time that I get together with my dear older brother, Jason Wallace, he sits down and goes, have you thought more about this idea? Are you going to start baptizing babies? And every single time I go, well, have you... If you show me a verse, we'll talk about it. <laughs> and we do this. And he's giving me books. And I talk, no matter what we're covering on that day, before he gets up and walks away, brother, I really want you to see this. I want you to, I want you to come along with me to see this. And I, and I do the same to him. Brother, I love you, but I really want you to see this. I don't think this is what you're supposed to go do here. We have sufficient agreement for unity. And yet, we're not going to shut up about it. There's never going to be a meeting we're going to get together where we're not going to find some way. To, brother, have you, did you see these verses? I just found this. I want you to know. Guys, that is Good. That is really, really good. You need to to have that doctrinal conviction. Think about this. is accompanied by a desire to draw others in, not push them out. The impulse is not, who can I push out of my circle with my beliefs? The impulse is, who can I share this belief with that they would come with me on it? Back to the hikers on the way to the waterfall. The goal is not, I really want the water for myself. Go ahead. The goal is, There's more than enough. Everybody come, please come, please come with me. This is the right way. Let me convince you. Let me plead with you. Look at the map. Look at the compass. Don't don't trust me. Just go a little farther with me and you'll see. That's how we are. If so many people in the world have this view of the church that we're just trying to build these lines in order to push out, no, we're aching to draw in. That's the impulse. Second, doctrinal debates strengthen the church. It's like working out together. It's like a better version of CrossFit for your heart and your soul in community. Imagine a military where after basic training, you learn how to run and and do all the push-ups, and you get the right haircut and they give you your uniform. You learn how to shoot the gun. No more training now. Everybody'd be like, that's absurd. Well, yeah, it's absurd. If the soldiers stop training, their muscles will atrophy. Their mindsets will go astray. They will begin to forsake the things that will keep them fine-tuned for battle. You train until you're fighting. And once you finish fighting, you train some more and then go fight again. As Christian conviction increases, it is typical that our desire to convince others also increases. In other words, if you sit down at the Bible and you're like, oh my goodness, Whoa, that's awesome. That's amazing. What are you going to want to do the next time you get together with brothers and sisters? How was your day? Yeah, yeah, great, great. Okay, so here's the deal. Look at this verse. Did you see it? Christians love this. It is good for us. This is like, this is literally what makes us able to bear the weight of false teaching in the world because we are strengthening one another all the time. And you know what's cool from one generation to the next of Christians? We write confessions and creeds in order to catalog and to kind of put in a uh, archive the truths that have been established and the and the ways we deal with error, so that we stand on the shoulders of giants each generation and build upon that all the same truth, but dealing with that together, so that we can grow in our strength to be able to be resilient to the lies that the world is going to bring in. Oh man, listen, a lot of people get really uncomfortable by debates. Some of you have natural families where you just argue. I'm actually kind of grateful. I grew up with a family who we're bored if we're not arguing over something. I'm one of seven kids. We get together. We're all pretty much in agreement on almost everything. But I'll tell you, we know the stuff we don't agree on. Because if it's getting a little too chummy around the dinner table, someone will go, hey, how about this? Oh, here we go. That's the Sanford household. Actually, not my, not my individual home right now. But, but my extended family, that's the way that it was with us. So I'm, I'm kind of used to it. Some of you guys go, debate doesn't bug me at all. Others of you "Ah, ah," get really nervous about debate and walk out. It's are natural. It's just built into you. You have a peacemaking kind of personality and it's uncomfortable for you. Let me encourage all of you. Debate in the church strengthens us. We will certainly in the lifetime of this church do debates on doctrine between two beloved Christians on this stage where we will talk about why we're trying to convince the other guy to baptize babies or not. Or to believe that God is sovereign ultimately or he's not. We're going to go through these things together. Why? Because that will literally make us stronger as a church. I could talk about that for a whole, whole week. Okay. With this being said, this necessarily means the next one. There are non-essential beliefs that are critical for body life. Here's what I mean by this. Unity of doctrine is essential for a local church, Right? But we may have sufficient agreement for gospel unity, universal church kind of unity. We talked about the universal church last week. But not have sufficient agreement for unity in local practice as a local church. So very practically what I mean. Brother Jason, he and I cannot be pastors at the same church at the same time. Why? Because he's going to want to baptize babies and I'm going to want to stop them. That's why. So do I affirm his faith? Absolutely. If I knew that somebody was leaving this church because they felt a missional responsibility to go, to go up to the, where they are there in Magna, or, or they were going to move up there and they wanted to be closely connected, I would be eager for you to connect there. And while you're there, try to convince them to stop baptizing there. Really, really. But it'd be hard in practice. What if you had a personal conviction? The Bible gives us this category. Some people call it the gray area. It's not really gray area. It's the kind of place where God puts a black and white something into your heart, okay? It's a place where you go, Man, I just... I just have a hard time, maybe it's my past, it's my experience, I don't know what it is, I can't handle musical worship. I want to do just voices. It's really hard for me. Praise be to God that there might be a church around that just does non-instrumental worship. That every single day you're not having to compromise conviction in order to go do that. This is genuinely a way in which denominations serve one another. If you're thinking, man, I just had a new baby, I want to baptize it, the mission church doesn't do that, But I know another church that does, and it's a gospel-preaching church. I hate that sound in the church. I want to find another one. that doesn't have that squeak. It's distracting in my worship. You could find a gospel-preaching church. It's not like if you're not a member here, you're not a Christian. Isn't that that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? And we don't compromise on those. We don't say, you know what, forget it. We'll We'll just all combine and pretend those things don't matter. No. I want to strengthen your conviction muscles. I want to make your discernment stronger, not weaker. It's just like what it says in the New Testament. When someone comes up and says, I don't think I should eat meat because it might have been sacrificed to those false idols. The Bible explicitly says, it's fine, you can do it. But the command is not get over it. The command is, let that conviction ring strong in your heart. Until God changes that conviction, then don't eat it. Don't eat the meat then. I won't even eat it with you. That's the way the Bible talks about this kind of things. Oh man, I love this stuff. You can participate in body life in a way that strengthens discernment rather than suppresses it for you. You can make your muscles stronger. This is one of the reasons it's good to have churches with varying beliefs that are still in the non-essential camp, right? Because you have to have the essential ones there. Oh, that's so good. We hate division. This is number four. We hate division, but we hate false teaching more. It's one of the points I was trying to make earlier. Like Paul, we don't want there to be divisions at all but we hate false teaching more than it. We believe that it robs Christians of the joy of really knowing God. Division will not keep you out of heaven, but false teaching will. You ever think of that? Division is not the, not, not standing at the gates of heaven and God's going, wait, what church are you part of? Oh man, okay, can't get in here. It's what you believe. The false teaching that produces false belief actually can impact the person's soul. Churches dividing over baptism, for example, does not keep a person out of heaven. I am eager to unite with fellow churches. Oh, my goodness. I love uniting with churches in this valley. I love uniting with churches outside this valley. But those we can really be in the same kind of place and love on each other and be there for each I love uniting. And you know what? It breaks my heart when other churches separate themselves from good churches because they insist on either abandoning the gospel or appointing unqualified leaders. Our, our list is short. And we don't have this desire to, to push out. We don't want the division, but we hate false teaching. We can't put up with this. The Bible commands me to not. More on that in upcoming weeks too. First, uh, excuse me, fifth point here. God saves people in broken churches we just let that wash over us for a second. God saves people in broken churches. Oh man, as a pastor, I love, I love that truth. That God's not going, I'm not doing anything until you get it all squared away. Can you imagine if our Christian walk was like that? If there were some beliefs that we still held from previous thought patterns that weren't quite true and God's like, I'm not blessing you at all. You got, you got to get that squared away before I get any further. God is good. God gives us good gifts even when we are full of folly, even when we're in error. This means, though, consider what this means. We must be very careful to not be pragmatists. In other words, we must not assume that because a person is genuinely saved in a ministry or in a church, that that's God's stamp of approval on everything that that church does. In other words, there are churches that I love, that I think are doing a lot of practice things wrong. And by God's grace, people are getting saved. Amen. And we don't go, that's not really saved. Well, if they're genuinely saved, they're saved. But we don't go, everything you did must be perfect then. You're tracking where I'm going? Do you see how this gives us a category for loving those who have varying beliefs and at the same time holding tight to go, but, 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 there might be something better. We don't let the pragmatist way win. God saves and he works in people and in churches in spite of our folly. Praise be to God. And last, most important, our Christian faith is founded not on churches, but on Jesus. He is our rock. He is our foundation. We're not saved because we're part of a particular local church. Jesus Is not founded on a church. The church is founded on Jesus. Our Christian faith is because he is our solid rock. That's what I want in mind as we close this morning and move on. As I pray to conclude our time this morning, I want to let you know next week we're going to talk about membership. I think that membership is a really clear teaching throughout the New Testament. It's something that I appeal to all of you to consider. Become part of a gospel-preaching local church. If it has the gospel and qualified leadership, Next week, we're going to walk through some of that, and I hope it would be helpful for you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you've given us a word to look to this Bible, to check churches and to determine if leaders are qualified and to see what doctrines you have put as first importance. And Lord, I pray that all here will acknowledge that, that we'll see that what we believe really matters, really, really does. And what a church teaches really matters. And it's at the core, the center. If programs were not what we wanted, if music style perhaps was not what we wanted, if a personality of an individual at a local church might not be our favorite interaction, Lord, help us to see how critical it is to have as the foundation truth. Lord, help this church be a church that constantly, humbly conforms more and more, day after day, week after week, to truth. Lord, I pray that this church does not look exactly like it does today, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, because as a church, as a body, by the way that we organize, that we will continually try to conform in humility to look more like what would be most ideal for us as written in your word. We love you, Lord. Give us humility in this. Help bind us together with like-minded brothers and sisters all over this valley, Utah, even the world. Help us to be eager to unite with those who share gospel and qualified leadership together. And Lord, remind us all the time, especially when we see imperfections in local churches, remind us that our faith is built on Jesus and that he alone is our solid rock. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.